Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney wishing everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We are in the thick of the holiday travel season and the thick of the winter weather season, and it's a challenging time for airlines and travelers, and also a joyous time for families reuniting for the holidays and people getting a break from work to spend with loved ones. Merry Christmas to you, Ben Baldanza. I hope Santa is good to you. And a happy new year to you, Scott. I hope Santa makes it through all the storms and air traffic control delays. And I hope he's not distracted by all the mergers going on in aviation. Yeah. Airlines have promised to deliver more reliability for holiday travelers. And we certainly want the Amazon airline to deliver all the packages. Yes. Let's hope they don't disappoint and leave us all a lump of coal. No, and it does. This time of year does remind you of the magic of the airline business, right? How important it is to everyone uh, to be able to travel and to be able to get together with family and be able to go fun places and it just uh, it, it sort of take a step back and say, you know, this is this is why everyone does what they do. And uh, and when it works, it really is wonderful. Airlines for America, the industry's Washington trade group, predicted a 16 percent increase in the number of people traveling over Christmas and New Year's this year compared to one year ago. That's a big jump and a big challenge for the industry. We're going to have a very timely talk today with Andrew Watterson, the Chief Operating Officer at Southwest Airlines. Andrew's going to give us some good detail on the problems that Southwest had last year when 16,700 flights were canceled and a couple of million travelers were inconvenienced, some stranded for days and plenty left without their luggage. I had the chance to talk to Andrew a few days ago. I'm sorry you had to miss the conversation, Ben. But Andrew's going to talk about winter fixes, a lot of the training that Southwest has done for this holiday season, and so much more. It's the perfect time to check in with Andrew and Southwest, and I think everyone will appreciate his insights. I'm really looking forward to hearing what Andrew has to say. And speaking of chief operating officers, I was interested to see that Boeing named a new COO, Stephanie Pope. She's seen as the heir apparent to the CEO's job. Current CEO Dave Calhoun will reach Boeing's mandatory retirement age of 70 in a little more than four years. 
like Andrew Watterson when he became chief operating officer at Southwest. Stephanie Pope will have a very long to-do list on day one to get things right at Boeing. I wish her luck and look forward to having a senior Boeing executive on the show in January. Wait, Ben. Boeing didn't have a chief operating officer? Somehow I found that shocking, given all the operational problems the company has had. I know Dave Calhoun has been very hands-on working on the problems, but it's interesting that the COO's job has been open. We've been talking to Boeing for some time about having someone on, and we're now targeting January. It'll be good to learn more about how Boeing's working on making sure it has the blue side up, as pilots say. Stephanie Pope is a very interesting choice as COO. She's almost a 30-year Boeing veteran and most recently headed Boeing's Global Services Division, which by all accounts has been successful since its launch in 2017. It's been the only consistently profitable unit in recent years. Boeing Global Services supports airlines and other customers with parts, modifications, fleet management, digital, training, lots and lots of different elements in the business. She's also been CFO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes, so she has a deep background in commercial airplanes and comes from the financial side. I might suggest that it's really important to have somebody from the financial side running things for future consideration of launching a new aircraft, but Boeing also has a lot of blocking and tackling to do to fix its problems. We wish her all the best and look forward to having her on the podcast sometime. One other interesting news item this week, Ben, Delta is adding 11 flights from Austin, Texas to its April schedule. This follows American pulling 21 flights from its schedule at Austin. For the first time, Delta is actually going to be selling a few itineraries with connections in Austin. Delta will offer Austin connections to Midland, Odessa in the Permian Basin oil patch and McAllen in South Texas on the border. It's only three flights a day to each city with regional jet service, so hardly a major investment. But it is a curious move, and I'm anxious to see if Southwest responds and if it leads to more Delta from Austin. Austin is a fierce battleground for airlines, a fast-growing city with strong business travel without a dominant hub carrier. I know there's a shortage of gates there that the city's working on, but Austin makes sense for Delta. It doesn't have a Texas hub, while American has Dallas to the north and United has Houston to the south. But it will be a battle. Southwest has 40% of the Austin market, and American, at least currently, has 22%, and a historically strong frequent flyer membership. Delta currently only has about 14% of the Austin market, so stay tuned. Very interesting, Scott. Delta has good experience and knows what it takes to build up a market like that, given what we've seen them do in Boston, New York, and Seattle. So I think Southwest and American have to be concerned. You know, interestingly, Dallas and Houston have long been big airline hubs in Texas. But in the last 10 years, 
Austin, and San Antonio have been growing faster and are becoming huge cities on their own. Mm-hmm. So this Austin fight doesn't surprise me, and it wouldn't surprise me if we see people or airlines piling into San Antonio soon, too. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned San Antonio, uh, partly because a friend pointed out to me that last week when I talked about the original Southwest Triangle, I lumped Austin and San Antonio together. People in Austin don't necessarily like that. The original triangle was Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. I think when you think about airline service in Central Texas, uh, you think much more about about Austin as we talked about high-speed rail uh, in that sort of uh, triangle, um, you you would definitely include Austin, um, but San Antonio uh, is is a separate city, very different culture, uh, very different population, and uh, and business community, and um, a really strong destination in its own right. Um, and I might add to your Delta Focus City list, uh, Raleigh Durham, which I, I travel to a lot. Um, Delta's doing things there too. So you're right. They know how to do this and uh, they have been successful with it. And it's really going to be interesting to see. I, as much Every time I go to Austin, there is more and more growth. It's hard to believe that there's not more international service. There are not more connecting flights there. Um, it is a vibrant, dynamic business community that probably does need a lot more air service. You know, it'll be interesting to watch whether over time there's more nonstop service from Austin and San Antonio into Mexico, mm-hmm. avoiding connections at Dallas or Houston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we forget, you know, it's interesting I was, uh, that, that Delta's picking McAllen as, as one of its cities. Um, we hear so much about trouble on the border, and there, there's no doubt uh, there, you know, there are just um, incredible challenges uh, that uh, officials are dealing with there, that communities are dealing with the influx of migrants. But we also forget that it's a really vibrant business community, right? There are, peop- there are people, workers going back and forth across the border every day, trucks and trucks and trucks and trucks going back, uh, back and forth, um, carrying all kinds of goods, manufacturing happening in northern Mexico, uh, that affects the uh, the border region. It can be, it is a really vibrant and important business community, and, and so um, the fact that uh, the Delta picked McAllen, um, which Southwest doesn't serve, Southwest goes to Harlingen, uh, which is uh, 35 miles to the east, closer to the South Padre Island beaches, uh, and more of a leisure destination. Um, McAllen's more of a business community, and uh, and so interesting that Delta picked that. You know, Scott, back when I worked at Continental, I went to McAllen and met some of the business people there. And at that time, this may not be true today, but at that time, Reynosa 
the city right across the border mm-hmm. to produce almost all the anti-lock braking systems for the auto industry. Huh. Well, that's fascinating. I wonder if that's still the case. And if that is the case, Ben, uh, maybe there's a lot of Detroit McAllen traffic that we never thought about. And, uh, and now those, those Delta customers in Detroit can connect in Austin down to McAllen. That's right. There you go. Well, Ben, I wanted to offer one note of thanks. We'll be off next week for the holidays. We'll return January 3rd with our predictions and outlook for 2024. We want to thank all our listeners and sponsors for an incredible 2023. It has been our honor and pleasure to talk to you each week about this industry with all of its joys and challenges. And personally, this marks one year for me, and so I want to thank you, Ben, for including me in the show and being such a great partner every week this year. It has been a true joy. We love doing Airlines Confidential, and we deeply appreciate all of our listeners who take the time to bring us into their ears. We look forward to so much more in 2024. Thank you for that, Scott. It has been a great year, and it's been great mostly because we have so many great listeners who like the show, send in questions, and count on us to keep them informed about what's really going on in this industry that we all love. Absolutely. We are also especially grateful to our sponsors, without whom Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank Duhop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duhop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the overall customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lowering their costs, and all while maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duop works with airlines to help passengers reach their final destination. This can be especially important over the holidays. Mm-hmm. Visit doop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P dot com. Now let's bring in Andrew Watterson, who became Chief Operating Officer at Southwest Airlines 
in October 2022. Before that, he was chief commercial officer running the pricing, marketing, and network planning side of the business. He joined Southwest as vice president of network planning and performance in October 2013. Prior to Southwest, Andrew was vice president of planning and revenue management at Hawaiian Airlines after 12 years as a partner with Oliver Wyman in the consulting firm's aviation practice. He started out as an operations management consultant with Ernst & Young and four years in the U.S. Army. He has a bachelor's degree from Washington University in St. Louis and an MBA from Vanderbilt University. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Airlines Confidential. We usually start with a simple question. How did you get into aviation? I, I know you took a somewhat circuitous route to Southwest, um, Army, grad school, aviation consultant, then Hawaiian, then Southwest. But did you have the bug early or did you happen to just fall into this business? It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'm flattered to be included in your uh, list of luminaries. And, um, but yeah, aviation, I'm, I'm an uh, av geek. I totally love the business. You know, I often joke that uh, sometimes people get the aviation bug as a kid and they have like two paths. It's the flight simulator or aviation tycoon. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm the aviation tycoon uh, uh, kid. Um, but I respect those who fly. I just didn't get that bug. But I did get it from my maternal grandfather, uh, who was a World War II aviator. And then after World War II, he, he was in the Air Force Reserve um, until he retired. But he, he started uh, with my grandmother, a kind of mom-and-pop type of uh, uh, MRO, where they converted military aircraft to civilian use post-war II, and they sold you know, PBY Catalina is one of their mainstays. They sold those and, and, and they manufactured parts uh, kind of pre-jet age and, and sold them around the world. And um, I would spend summers in, in their hangar in their office and uh, see it firsthand. So it was that business side that really passioned me more so than the flying side. Wow, that's fascinating. And did you ever want to fly? I'm, I'm curious about the flight simulator role. No, I didn't. You know, it just, I, I it never grasped me. I, I was, you know, I like watching airplanes, you know, I like you know, looking at them and identifying you know, what aircraft is that, what engine they have on, you know, and, uh, and such. And, uh, but the kind of flying, I guess I respect it, but I never was um, passionate about it. Huh. So you took the role of chief operating officer right before the disastrous Christmas meltdown last year, and you became the fix-it guy. Give us an update on how that's gone. Well, yeah, that was, um, you know, it, that was not pleasant, but actually the most stressful part was right afterwards when everyone was running in different directions about, you know, with a different idea of what caused it, what we should do. And so it, it, it took, you know, uh, you know, not too long, but it seemed like to go in slow motion of getting everyone organized, take a structured approach to looking at what went wrong and therefore what we should do to make it not happen again. And so, but, you know, before winter was over, you know, I had a pretty good structured uh, investigation that gave us, you know, pointed us in the right direction. We set up a, a, you know, a project office to get things done. You know, I, I'm not a fan of the perfect storm analogy. I think it's overused, but I do like in aviation safety, the Swiss cheese model people talk about of how if the holes in the Swiss cheese line up, then something can get through. And it was, mm. that was a good, you know, analogy for, you know, what went wrong. It wasn't like one thing. It was a series of shortcomings that taken together had us fall over and any complex system falling over is usually probably the Swiss cheese model there. And so therefore you don't need to do one thing. You need to have a series of actions to, to address all the holes in the Swiss cheese. And so that's the approach we've taken. We've worked all year and kind of got them done here as we head into winter season this year. So I feel, feel pretty confident. 
And with that Swiss cheese model, what was the most important aspect of the fix? It, it, it's interesting you, you say that because we hear a lot about seemingly small things like de-icing trucks in Denver. But, but what's made the biggest impact, you think, so far? Well, um, if you go back to the event, it was I could say it's a nine-day event with three days of winter weather that everyone experienced, three days of a crew-driven disruption was just Southwest Airlines, and three days where we had reset the network to a lower level and we're just offering cleanly, but, you know, at a third of the level uh, to get everything um, straightened up to restart operations at full strength. And so, you know, the first three days, we could not operate through winter weather like we should have been able to, like other airlines would. And so it was a storm we had not seen before, and the kind of learning is you have to plan for weather and events that are outside, you know, your history set. Um, because you, you look at any airline that has a multi-day problem like that, and it undoubtedly comes back to flight crews. Hmm. In fact, um, another airline that kind of mocked us right after our meltdown, uh, well, Karma bit them in the butt, and they, <laughs> uh, they had a meltdown uh, the summer, and it was also multiple days, and it came back to crew eventually as a, as a problem. And so for us, you know, our winter weather problem was in our, you know, two of our crew bases. In fact, 25% of our crew were based in, in Denver or in Chicago, and as you and your listeners probably know, crews are often on a three-day pairing on average. And if you don't get out on day one, well, guess what? Day two and day three, you're not where you're supposed to be. And so we had, you know, 24 to 36 hours in Denver and then Chicago. We didn't operate hardly any flights at all. Hmm. And our crew network got so damaged that they were so out of place that then we went to repair it those subsequent three days, and our software was not up to the, uh, the challenge. You know, we got a lot of bad press on the software side, but it, it wasn't the software that caused the problem. We caused the problem, and the software was uh, unable to, to handle it. And so, therefore, what we needed to do was to go back and say, okay, in winter weather, we need to operate to sufficient tempo safely where we, our crews continue to circulate and rotate in the network. And therefore, what's the throughput we need at all of our winter stations? But, and our crew base has the highest standard of throughput. And so when you do that, then you say, okay, well, in order to get my originating crews out in Denver, I need a throughput rate of X. And X means I need, you know, so many de-icing pads, so many de-icing trucks, so much staff, you know, uh, heaters, you know, lots of winter weather type stuff to help you operate both you know, the ground crews and the pilots to operate at sufficient rhythm. And so that was kind of your, that was the first grouping of, of winter weather. The second grouping is how we make decisions. You know, I was in the Army, as you mentioned, and people often say fog of war. Well, you, you want to have... Uh, in the military, you never have fog of war. You're supposed to have situational awareness at all times and good command and control. So we need to bolster how we made decisions between crew scheduling, our command center, you know, our, our stations. And so we set up checklists, you know, processes uh, uh, for how they coordinate themselves in those moments. And then lastly, you need some good operational investments. And that category does include like uh, technology enhancements and other type of uh, uh, operational infrastructure needs. Uh, that kind of cut across all domains. And so we had, uh, you know, numerous um, projects and all those I mentioned before. And that first step of the throughput through winter weather, we've had some preseason games, if you will, and have been able to operate at a very high rhythm through, uh, through the winter weather. So I feel confident then that, you know, we'll be able to keep that that uh, uh, that crew network moving. So that, what I would say, is the um, A, the original sin, and B, what's been the most value right now. Uh-huh. 
So it really sounds like you've, it's, it's not just a staffing issue, but you've rewritten the playbook for how to operate in bad weather. Yeah, as long as we can, the goal is, you know, as long as it's safe in all but the most extreme weather, we want to be able to operate our network, which required more than we had before. More people, more trucks, more pads, more fluid, more everything. And so it's more dimensionalizing your, your crew bases to be able to operate through inclement weather as long as it's safe. And so are you feeling confident about the upcoming winter? And, and, and with that, is, is the staffing where you want it to be? Yes, the staffing's where we want it to be because um, some of them are newer. You have to um, kind of have them become qualified on de-icing. So we did de-icing summer school all summer, but kind of the final sign-off is, is actual uh, experience in events with a trainer with you. And so getting everyone signed off is kind of we're almost done with that. Fortunately, we've had uh, Denver had a couple big early snowfalls, and um, we were able to, A, test out our new uh, process, which we've passed with flying colors, and secondly, able to kind of sign off a lot of people on their kind of first experience early on, which was uh, also going to be helpful later on. Hmm. So interesting. All right. Let's talk about all the consolidation happening all around you in, in this on both coasts now. Uh, obviously, you know Hawaiian and Peter Ingram well. And Ben and I are, are curious about your thoughts about Alaska Hawaiian and does that impact Southwest? Um, I've, I've been saying on the podcast, I think. Southwest is is a lot of the reason why the the two of them are looking to get together. I also want to ask what you think is going to happen with JetBlue and Spirit, um, whether you're hoping to pick up gates and slots in Boston, New York, and Washington with the judge talking about divestitures. Oh, there's a lot in that question. You know, yes. The, uh, <laughs> I, I've been a, a poor forecaster of when consolidation will happen and won't happen, so I've got a little bit of humility there. <laughs> um, but as far as you know, what they're going to do, you know, having been on kind of both sides, inside and outside of companies merging, you have a plan, a strategy when you embark upon this. And so as an outside, we don't really yet know what Alaska intends with Hawaiian or what JetBlue intends with Spirit. You get some snippets out of, the, out of the trials and stuff like that, but we don't know what they're going to try to accomplish with this new, you know, capability and assets they have at their disposal. You know, you go back and look at, you know, Alaska Ball Virgin America, and I, I still have um, on my wall next to my desk, and I'm talking to you, um, the investor presentation that Alaska gave, which was we're going to do in California what we did in the PAC Northwest, which means we're going to dethrone Southwest in California. So obviously that led to a dust up between us and Alaska. Uh, I think we came out okay in that one. Yeah. And so, you know, once again, when Alaska buys Hawaiian or JetBlue buys Spirit, are they going to, you know, look to conquest in areas where we have a large customer base or are they going to look to conquest somewhere else? And so we, I won't really know in, until they put their cards on the table if this is going to cause us, you know, uh, problems or create opportunities for us. So um, I'm still in the wait and see mode and I see the business logic, but, you know, these are legal matters. So I, I don't actually know. I don't have good insight in how it's going to land in the, with the judges. Yeah. Business logic, do you think it, it makes sense? Does industry consolidation need to happen more with the small airlines? You know, you can have organic growth or kind of inorganic growth, I guess, here. Or certain strategies that you may want to have and you want to accelerate that buying could help you with. Uh, when you grow organically, 
you can grow, you know, as Ben knows, uh, uh, you can grow at a pretty high growth rate organically, but still it's only a certain pace. And so if you have a strategy that says I need a kind of a, a breakout scale to action my strategy, then I want to, I need a kind of more chunky amount of capacity. And that means I have to buy it, buy somebody else's airline and redeploy their assets according to my strategy to, you know, to achieve that strategy. So, you know, I think buying is a legitimate business tactic to, to get where you need to go. You don't have to. There's been lots of, you know, surprisingly new airlines founded and created and seem to be flourishing right now. So you can start an airline, you can grow organically, but not every strategy um, is amenable to organic growth. Yeah, it would seem to be harder and harder to grow organically when there's a shortage of pilots and a shortage of engines, shortage of airplanes. Yeah, you know, to use a, a, a kind of out of a favorite word, some of those are transitory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you already see the pilot market softening up a little bit. Cargo carriers have stopped hiring, even shedding pilots. You know, uh, the regionals seem to be kind of adding back flying. We've caught our fleet. So we're flying off our fleet now. So, you know, these things will eventually pass. But, you know, there have been a couple airlines, you know, founded and expanding their period of time. So you can do it. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, you, you, I recognize some airlines are in a bit of a bad spot, and, and so the um, uh, purchasing another airline could be a way to action a strategy that gets you out of your bad spot. So it's, you know, I don't think you have to do it uh, as a general rule for industry kind of maximum, if you will, but it does, you know, for certain airlines, it makes complete sense that in order for them to achieve their, their outcomes they need, they have to buy. Mm-hmm. Even even though, I mean, so often it seems, and, and this was kind of true for Southwest. I mean, you mentioned uh, Alaska buying Virgin, uh, Southwest bought AirTrain. You don't, you don't have a lot left of what you bought with, with AirTrain. Um, sometimes that's, it, it doesn't work out, right? You buy assets and, and they're going to disappear. I'm really pleased with what we have uh, with uh, AirTrain. We, um, it kind of was uh, jump-started us into international which has been a very nice compliment. It's really helped us in the uh, mid-Atlantic and Midwest. You know, um, you look at kind of the old airline sunshine strategy where they had uh, from that route kind of, you know, mid-Atlantic, Midwest to uh, Florida and the Caribbean. That has really shored up the, the, the uh, eastern third of our network. Before AirTran, the eastern third of our network was not strong. Huh. We, we had a name. Southwest was our name because we were strong in the south and the west. That's where we started. Yeah. Um, and by the time we got to the east, you know, some of the big cities were full, and um, uh, and we we just didn't have the scale in some of these places we would have liked. And so buying AirTran and what it gave us in the middle length and Midwest, uh, plus the international, really shored up the eastern third of our network. And so we feel like we're um, have good durability and strength in the, in the eastern third of the United States uh, now, unlike we had, you know, 15 years ago. Huh. Interesting. Good. So what's ahead for Southwest? Where do, where do you see growth for you guys? You know, we kind of pre-grew, um, if you will, uh, during COVID. You know, our you know, business travel is way down. And it turns out if your boss says don't travel for business, you don't travel for business. Yeah. But you can convince Honey to travel. And so people convinced Honey to travel during COVID. So we took about, you know, 120 plus aircraft out of our business type markets and went into 18 new airports. Uh, Hawaii expansion, and that allowed us to expose ourselves to more revenue because uh, you want to be broader, not deeper, when you have demand issues. And it kept our people busy, kept our airplanes busy, and we were happy. 
then as the world was normalizing, which has taken far longer than I would have thought, um, we then wanted to kind of fill back in the old network. And so kind of the, um, um, we've been filling back in the old network uh, the last year, year and a half, two years. And so uh, now we're at a point where not everything's back completely, but it's kind of the network has been kind of solidified, if you will. And so now we're rotating out of kind of a kind of hyper growth mode to a more orderly growth rate. And now the focus is getting our margins back to where they normally are. And so it'll be more of a optimizing year in, in 24 and beyond as we kind of restore the profitability uh, now that we've restored the network. And do you think the margins will come back? There's been a lot of discussion about lower fares, about excess capacity, about the difficulty, uh, especially with business travel, maybe, you know, 20% of it pretty much gone permanently. We're pleased with the business restoration we've seen at Southwest Airlines. You may recall that we've made investments to be able to get more exposure to large corporates because we were underweight there. And so the pie may be smaller, but uh, we're getting a bigger slice. So we like that. But mm-hmm. um, we feel like we have a um, plan in front of us that if we execute, uh, we get to where we need to go. So it's not really dependent upon a judge or vagaries of the economy. Uh, we feel like um, our approach to kind of get our, you know, a little bit of work on our productivity and then some work on the revenue side gets us where we, uh, where we need to go. Um, the benefit of Southwest Airlines is we're so diversified in our network, and because we're, we're mostly point-to-point, we can move around our center of gravity to expose our network to places where there's a higher strength, but they're also, because of that diversity, we have a big customer base there already. And so you'll see that as we kind of reconfigure our network starting in January of this coming year, um, you know, we, we're moving away to being a little bit less business or, uh, and a little bit more leisure, mixed leisure business. To the naked eye, you wouldn't necessarily notice it, but, you know, at a, a few percentage points matters in this business. And so, you like, you take our short haul, we were about 41% short haul, which we call zero to 500 miles last year, earlier this year, and we'll be 36%, you know, kind of mid next year. So, hmm. you know, a five-point swing in the business-heavy short haul and putting those in medium or longer haul that are either business, either leisure or mixed business leisure, you know, we think we'll have a, um, a pretty strong benefit. There's some other stuff we're working on as well. So I think we have a plan that if we execute, gets us where we need to go. Interesting. And how about the biggest challenges ahead for Southwest? As you get bigger, I mean, this is, this is for years, Southwest faced this, this challenge. As you get bigger, sometimes the challenges get bigger too. That's true. I mean, it's anything of our disruption taught us is to kind of plan for uh, the world that's coming, not the world you've been in. And so our challenge is, you know, right now, A, get through the winter, but, you know, feel confident about that, but then B, restore the margin. So our challenges, I think, are, are, are all quite manageable. I, I'm reluctant to, to say uh, a boring year because when I did an interview in January of 2020 and I said I wanted a boring year after the uh, – to the excitement of 2018, 2019, um, yeah. COVID showed up. So uh, I'm not going to jinx myself again, but, you know, hopefully an orderly growth rate and a, and a kind of focus on optimization is a better rhythm and a, uh, um, you know, a better lived experience for everybody in 24 than compared to the previous, you know, four or five years. Excellent. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. I know Ben was disappointed that he couldn't join us for the conversation, but I really appreciate you jumping on and filling us in. Um, Enjoyed it very much, and good luck this winter. Thank you so much, and please give my love to Ben. Uh, I appreciate what you guys do very much. 
Thanks. Take care. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard. The Archive.net. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. And thanks to Andrew for a fascinating discussion about what's ahead for Southwest and how the airline is dealing with the holiday travel surge right now. Andrew is clearly one of the brightest stars in the industry today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look forward to much, much more from Andrew. Um, And, uh, you know, this is such a test. If Southwest gets through the holiday season, I think you can... uh, you can certainly the CEO Bob Jordan uh, has has done a lot there, but this has really fallen to Andrew to fix, and uh, and and if they get it fixed, uh, I think there is a very bright future for Andrew Waterson at Southwest Airlines. So Ben, in the mailbag this week, Joe from Los Angeles asks a good question about the high-speed LA to Vegas train we talked about last week. Hi guys, love the show. I asked Peter Greenberg about why Amtrak canceled the route from L.A. Union Station to Las Vegas back in the early 2000s. He claimed Amtrak canceled the route due to low ridership, but the new plan is for a station in Rancho Cucamonga, a suburb kind of far from the city of Los Angeles. What are your opinions about this investment being successful? Thanks for the question, Joe. I think it's a different world now for high-speed rail in that market. I wouldn't be too worried about the suburban station. LA now has a more robust rail network that can get you from Union Station and lots of other points out to Rancho Cucamonga. And by the way, Uber didn't exist at all in the early 2000s. I agree with you, the suburban station is pretty far out. Rancho Cucamonga is in San Bernardino County and about 37 miles east of downtown LA. It's not ideal, but I think the complexity of getting a big high-speed train into downtown would take a lot more time and money. It's not like getting to Los Angeles International Airport is quick, easy, and convenient. Yet millions of people fly to Vegas. Millions of people drive to Vegas. You'll have a choice. Either fight the crowds and complexities and delays. It can take you 45 minutes just to get into the airport at LAX. Or you can drive four or five hours all the way, or you can leave your car in Rancho Cucamongo and be in Vegas 90 minutes later. I think high-speed rail will be very attractive in that market, especially since the government is paying a lot of the cost. That last point is key, Scott. Yeah. I'm not too optimistic about high-speed rail there that isn't subsidized. But if it is and they want to build it, it certainly could become a reasonable alternative. Yeah, I think so. You know, as we talked about last week, I still think there are only a handful of possible city pairs uh, where high-speed rail could work in the U.S. Um, When you get past that, the the distances are are too long. Um, The airplane culture is too strong, and the investment has already been made in air service over rail in this country. Now I'll make a very 
non-holiday kind of statement. <laughs> but it's high speed and Amtrak. Usually I'm put in the same sentence. Correct. Yes. <laughs> and, and this won't be Amtrak. This will be a private operator. That's right. That makes it more optimistic. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, with that Christmas nugget out of Santa's bag, that's all for another year of Airlines Confidential. Thanks again, everyone, and happy holidays to all. We'll be back next year with much more. I hope everyone has a very safe and happy holiday season. Be back with you in early January for more great stories. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.